Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang. I'm Ed Crooks. The governments of the world say they want to reach net zero emissions, mostly by the end of the century. About 88% of global emissions are produced by countries that have made one of those net zero commitments. But achieving those objectives is a huge challenge that will require rarely seen levels of cooperation between governments and businesses. Australia is one of the countries that has made more progress than many towards achieving that objective. It now gets about 24% of its power from renewables, which is an impressive feat, but it hasn't been easy. Hitachi Energy, a long-time partner of the Energy Gang, has played an integral role in helping Australia to achieve that number. On today's episode, we're joined by two key representatives from Hitachi Energy to discuss what they've been doing in Australia and some of the lessons that other countries can learn from Australia's experience. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Jürgen Zimmermann, who's a Business Development and Technology Manager for Hitachi Energy based in Australia. Hello, Jürgen. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Ed. Great to be with you. And also by John Glassmeyer, who's a Senior Advisor for Grid Edge Solutions, also at Hitachi Energy. Hello, John. Hi. Pleased to be here. Thank you very much indeed both for joining us. Before we get started and really get into the meat of our discussion about Australia and what you've been doing there. Can you maybe tell me a little bit about yourselves, about your backgrounds, how you got into the clean energy business? Jürgen, maybe start with you. Uh, What path brought you to Hitachi Energy and the role you've got at the moment? Yeah, sure. No problems at all. So look, Ed, I I started about 30 years ago in in off-grid systems. So as you know, here in Australia, we've got some very remote communities. And this is where I started my career. First as an electrical engineer, installing actually, funny enough, batteries into containers. And then later on, we moved from these off-grid microgrids actually more into grid-connected systems. And the topic for us has always been about how do we stabilize networks, how do we connect renewables, and what started as a very small business now has really grown into a much larger global business in Hitachi Energy, so we can actually enable 100% renewable energy in those bigger networks. And John, what about you? What's your career path been in clean energy? Yep. So I've been in the power industry for, oh gosh, 15 years at this point. And most of that's been focused on distributed renewable systems, including microgrids and uh, distributed solar PV. I've been with Hitachi Energy for three or four years now. And uh, there, a lot of what I do is help to understand the value proposition, understand why you would invest in these types of technologies to move us forward on our clean energy transition. In addition to my roles at Hitachi Energy, I also lead a class at the University of Washington on distributed renewable power systems. Very interesting. So now tell me a bit more about Hitachi Energy then. Uh, Tell us about what the company does and a little bit of of the history, right? Because it's been um, evolving the past few years. Yeah. So Hitachi Energy has a long history in energy. So we have more than 250 years of combined heritage, really focused on providing energy solutions to both industries and to utilities. And it's really, we provide these solutions anywhere people want clean, low-cost, reliable, and, and as Jürgen put it, stable energy supplies. So more, more recently, uh, Hitachi Energy has evolved to further emphasize a focus on energy solutions that support and enable the clean energy transition. Got it. Thanks. So, Jürgen, as I say, we're keen to focus in this podcast on Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about the background in Australia? What is the state of the clean energy industry there? As I was saying in the introduction there, they're getting now 24% of their electricity from renewables. How have they got to that point? 
At, um, let me maybe explain a little bit about Australia and the energy system here, you know, to your listeners, so we can get a an, an, an perspective as to on the scale and the size of what we're trying to do. So in Australia, we've got two large interconnected systems. One is called the NEM or the National Electricity Market, which covers pretty much the east coast of Australia. And then second, in Western Australia, we have another network called the, the WEM or the Western Australian Market, which also has got a challenge around renewable energy connecting. So put it into size perspective against the US, the large network is in the national electricity market, you know, covering from cities of Adelaide via Melbourne, Sydney up to Brisbane, they're all interconnected into one large system. And that system has a typical demand between 30 to say 35 gigawatts. Now that's about the size of a single state in the US um, to, I guess, explain why this could be now relevant of what Australia is going through from an energy transformation. Now you've mentioned the number 24% of renewables being connected at the moment. And really that's the challenge what we see. And it is more and more renewables connect, especially in the distributed energy sense. And hence the, the penetration that we see from renewables is going up and up and up and the networks need to follow. So as the proportion of variable renewables on a grid increases, naturally that starts to create various strains on that grid. And one of the solutions clearly that a lot of people are going to is energy storage of various kinds, including particularly battery storage. Now, that's something you've been doing right in Australia. You've been involved in the Dalrymple Esquire Energy Storage Facility, which came online in 2018. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? What is it that it does? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a good question, Ed. And it was one of those projects that we're trying to foresee what actually we need to do in the future. So when I say in the future, this project started about five years ago with at this stage, the utility being Electronet that operates the South Australian network realized that their penetration of renewable energy in South Australia was increasing faster than anyone else's in Australia. Put that into perspective, South Australia just ran about a week ago on 100% renewable energy for a limited time, but they're definitely now seeing the limits being reached. So in order to be able to operate a stable network, they realized to say, we need to now invest five years ago into different technology to allow that sort of stable network to operate. That's when Dalrymple came about. So the Dalrymple battery is fundamentally connecting to the network and providing services, services such as frequency support, such as what we call you know, inertia and so forth, into the network so we can operate with large amounts of renewables connected in an intermittent sense. Yeah, I want to bring in you, John, maybe to, to discuss some of these things. There's some fairly technical terms being banned around there when you talk about inertia and so on. When you think about this facility then, and when you think about the role of storage on a grid with, as you say, that at times is operating 100% on renewable energy, what are these services that storage can provide and what is the role that storage is really playing in keeping the grid stable? Yeah, so I always like to take a look back and think about, well, where, where are we coming from? And the, the history of grids really globally has been reliance on these big spinning machines. Sometimes in our parlance, we'll call them, you know, we'll say synchronous generation. Um, and it's called that because you have these big spinning masses that'll be spinning and providing that stability and consistency into that grid, um, what, what we'd call inertia. And so as these more affordable renewable sources are coming online, wind and solar, 
they're requiring us to take off those traditional generations, those synchronous generators. And some of those services are important for the stability of the grid. And the battery energy storage system helps to replace that. And, and in, in this particular project, it goes beyond what most battery energy storage systems do and can fully replace those services. So it actually has what we call a, a virtual synchronous machine. Actually, our, our proprietary implementation of that is, is what we call a virtual generator mode, VGM, that um, is used to inject some of the inertia. So keep that nice um, frequency going up and down at the, I guess in the case of Australia, 50 hertz, you know, in the US, 60 hertz, but keep that nice frequency stable. And at the same time, also provide some some system strength. So really keep the the voltage analog to the frequency going. And you know what this means for a person who lives in either uh, other parts of the network in the state of South Australia, or or even locally, even more directly, it means you know reliable power that's delivered to them in the way that everyone expects it, which really helps with um, how you use your electricity and ensures that you can have that stability, that reliability, that consistency delivered from renewable sources. Right. And so Jürgen was talking about also a range of services that can be provided by the storage facility. So inertia is just one of them, right? I mean, what else is it doing? Yeah. So that particular project is located at the end of a long wire. So in in the industry, we'd call that a long radial feeder. Um, and, and what that means, there's actually a community that lives out at the end of this line, along with a big wind farm, something in the neighborhood of, uh, what's it, 91 megawatt wind farm. And those houses and businesses that are in that nearby community, they have about th- three to four megawatts of, of distributed solar photovoltaics peppered across the, the, the network. So with these assets coming together, the, the battery energy storage system with its grid-forming inverter there provides a linchpin that allows them to continue providing power even if there are, say, issues upstream. And, you know, South Australia as a state is marching along on its energy transition. They have a lot of renewables, but even here more localized to the network, right around the Dalrymple area, they have a lot of renewables. And so this project was configured so that it can operate as what we call a microgrid. So it can actually operate independent of the state, the whole rest of the state grid. Um, so if there are issues, say a lightning strike were to hit that long line that connects the, the, the homes and businesses down at the end of the peninsula, they'll keep their power up. And when there aren't any of those um, lightning strikes, say taking out that long line, injects a bunch of services up into the state grid and ensures that it operates well. So it's really got a multi-layered range of benefits that it provides here in, in South Australia and locally. And so in terms of the, the synergy, if you like, between storage and renewables, is the point you would just not be able to have as many variable renewables on the grid in South Australia as you do have without that storage capability? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And you'd, you'd have it both at the state level and the local level. I mean, that's a really interesting angle here that it's both local and uh, more regional benefits. That's somewhat unique in how it's configured. And it, it all comes down to that virtual synchronous machine that's embedded inside that grid forming inverter of this, this battery system. So Jürgen, thinking about conditions in Australia, one of the things I think is really interesting here is the question about market design and government support and what kind of arrangements you need to be able to make this kind of investment in this kind of storage facility in order to 
provide the services that you are providing. Can you talk a bit about conditions in Australia and, as I say, what governments did, what regulators did in order to make it possible for you and other companies to invest in storage? Yeah, no, it's a very good question because, you know, technology is only one piece to solve that transition puzzle, the framework to create investment and certainty around investment because these are all 20-year and longer assets. You know, we need to ensure that that investment, you know, of course, provides a return. So how does it happen at the moment? You know, storage, of course, from a market point of view, has the simple uh, proposition that you can charge it. You know, best means you, of course, you know, you're buying energy and then you're trying to discharge again, you know, at a higher price, say, to, to then sell the energy again. Now, that's just what we would call in the value stack, just one service you can provide. Now, the trick with battery energy storage systems is to get multiple value stacking with the same asset so you can get multiple revenue streams. And I just picked the Rimple in this case. There was a very innovative business model behind this as well, meaning that the asset owner of this Rimple battery is actually the local transmission company. And that's Electronet. But what they do, because they're not allowed to trade in the market because they're a regulated business, they then actually lease power to this battery to a private company, in this case is actually um, AGL, who operates part of the battery then in the network and makes money as such in the network. So the two together, meaning um, Electronet as a utility, they save money. For instance, when John mentioned that this battery can take a whole section of the network away, and then reconnect it again. So what Electronic was able to do with the battery, instead of doing their servicing on the transmission line at nighttime, right, they can actually do it during daytime now because they can simply take the line out because the consumers still get the same amount of electricity as before and then yeah, they reconnect it again and re-energize the line. So it's actually benefits that no one saw at the beginning that suddenly became true as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's very clever. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 one of those things that you just don't realize until you use it and get confidence, of course, in it as well, that that's what you can do. And so there's multiple benefits that come in this case to multiple different parties in the value stack. You've been using that expression value stack, which I think is really interesting. Again, so when you think about the business model for a project like this, and obviously, so it came online in 2018. This was at a time when I guess batteries were even more expensive than they are now making the business case what relied on getting that that sort of value stack of multiple revenue streams did it is that is that the case that you couldn't really make make the economics work without several different sources of income correct so there are three parts to this so there was the part where we needed to get access to the market which was then done through leasing part of the battery the other part was of course you know realizing the revenue streams that the utility could get by you know having less outages as well as being able to change their maintenance regime but the third one was that in australia we have um arena so this is australian renewable energy agency so they were they are a funding body that enhances or supports renewable energy projects so arena supported this project they could see this is what we need going forward and the interesting thing here is that um, Arena, of course, invested quite a bit of money in it. But because this battery made now so much money after it got commissioned, that they actually got their money back, right? So this was actually not a grant that, um, you know, where money was given and then nothing came back. They actually all got their money back as well because the way the battery was operated in the network. So there are important incentives at the beginning that we need to get the technology going and connected. But once it's there, you can, of course, back off those incentives because then the market forces usually take over. 
Got it. And so just to take um, one more example then, that inertia that John was talking about earlier, uh, how do you get paid for that? How does the facility get um, rewarded for providing that very important service to the grid? Yes, very good question. So inertia at this point in time in the Australian market is not a revenue stream that you can actually get money from. So that's a challenge for this transition that we're going through. But what's been realized now is that this is actually a missing part in incentivizing developers who put battery systems onto the network to incentivize them to actually now use virtual synchronous machines, which are what we call grid forming inverters. So they form the grid, rather what the business as usual approach is, which is to use grid following, meaning inverters, solar inverters or in wind turbines that do need a grid to connect to. So there's a transition here now from a regular point of view where they're now looking at how can we incentivize um, developers to invest into virtual synchronous machines so we get more of these devices onto the network. So John, you're US-based and have a global perspective. When you look at what happened in Australia from what Jürgen's been talking about, the way he's been describing it, it sounds like actually the Australian authorities, governments, regulators, agencies did a pretty good job of putting together a package that worked to make investment in storage capability possible, created the right incentives for the private sector to, to put that money in. What are the lessons, do you think, from that for the rest of the world when you look at what Australia's been doing and kind of try to generalize that globally and to think about this enormous global need we're going to have for more storage to back up renewables absolutely everywhere? What are the lessons that can be learned, do you think? Yeah, I mean, so look, the first thing I think to hope, hopefully it's established that the Australian grid is a lot like a lot of the grids globally. It's a lot like the grid we have here in North America. It's a lot like the grid we have in Europe. And, you know, it's gone through this uh, path of it's, I guess, let, let's back up. It's structured in a way that's similar to other to, to these markets. So, so a lot of the work that the Australian energy market operator, IEMO, and ARENA and the various facets of the, the market there, a lot of the things that they've done to advance these projects. I mean, it's not like they haven't had road bumps along the way as they've gone, gone through this. And if you can look to what they've done, we can learn from that and try to avoid some of those road bumps. So, for example, Australia put in uh, has been investing heavily in energy storage technology. And as they've been going along, they learned, they, they saw, had foresight to invest into these types of technologies. And you can see with a project like Eskri that this grid forming technology really is the future. And so there's that element. And even more recently, they've just done another round looking at recognizing that, you know, Jurgen mentioned inertia isn't monetized yet. They've put out a funding round specifically focused on getting more of these types of systems deployed so that when they do cross over to a fully renewable grid, they're ready for it. Because one of the challenges will be, as you put in renewables, at some point you cross over a line where you need some of that inertia replaced and you want to be ready for that. That sort of foresight is something I think we can learn from. Another element that they've done is they've been doing a lot of advanced modeling of their network where they're trying to characterize some of the different assets that are that are going into the grid. So um, one of the things they did is uh, as renewables were coming on, they were starting to have some voltage challenges in some parts of their network. 
And the old school traditional approach to that was to put in something called a synchronous condenser. But they actually did a bunch of modeling that showed that, well, you can actually use battery energy storage systems to replace that if they have this grid forming virtual synchronous machine technology in it. So that kind of modeling establishes that new power electronic based solutions, new digital solutions, if you, if you will, are able to replace and supplement those types of solutions. So it really, they've been really insightful and thoughtful about how they've been going forward with, with some of their planning. They've, I, I think they have had some of those speed bumps along the way, as you would expect in something as ambitious as an energy transition. But I'm really impressed at how they have been navigating it. And I know that in some of the work I've been involved with here in the U.S., I, I'm always very careful to point out, look to Australia about what they've done so that as we try to bump up, say, our use of renewables in North America or in Europe, we can learn from some of those, those steps and do it in a smoother way so we don't have to have as many road bumps. So, John, you've been saying that Australia is ahead of many other countries in the world in terms of its reliance on wind and solar power, and it's been doing some interesting things in energy policy and regulation, which have helped support investment in storage. And therefore, there are plenty of lessons that other places around the world can learn from Australia. And there are a lot of issues that other places around the world are going to be facing as shares of wind and solar on the grid increase in many different places. They're going to be facing those same challenges and are going to have to be looking for solutions in the same way. My question is, how far are other parts of the world already learning those lessons? If you talk to governments and regulators in Europe or in North America, do you get the sense that they get it yet? Do they know what's really required to encourage the right kind of investment in storage, or are they still some way behind the curve? Well, I mean, I think we're all a little bit all behind the curve a little bit, but there are definitely pockets who are are getting it. Um, you know the. So, for example, here in the U.S., the Department of Energy has funded a consortium that's really focused on this, the UNIFI Consortium, U-N-I-F-I, all caps. Um, and the purpose of this is really looking at the sorts of technologies that were deployed in the ESCRI project, these grid-forming converters, and figuring out ways to standardize them and to help the markets here adopt them. So I think that's a really exciting and, you know, looking to sort of how Australia's done some of this, there's some some parallels there, and I, and they've definitely been looking at this ESCRI project that we talked about. I mean, it truly is a, a cutting edge project in in that regard. Um, and you know, you look over to say the UK and Ireland; that those are both islands, so they're bumping up against some of these challenges sooner. They've definitely got some some progress that they've made, and they've I know they've been engaging with Australia a little bit around this as well. So, Jürgen, I wanted to go back uh, to something you were talking about earlier. You talked about um, South Australia at times having all its electricity coming from renewable sources. That, I think, would be only for quite a limited period of time. Certainly, when you see other examples of this happening around the world, you'll see sort of uh, excited headlines and people kind of um, talking about this in very kind of breathless way and saying, oh, look, it's fantastic. Such and such a place got 100% of its electricity from wind and solar power. And then you look into it a bit deeply and it turned out to be for a period of minutes. Clearly, it's kind of interesting. These examples are 
interesting and possible pointers to the future, but there's still an enormous way to go from having these very occasional 100% renewable grids to getting a grid that can be based on renewable energy 24-7. Realistically, is a 24-7, 365 days a year renewable energy grid possible, do you think, anywhere in the world? And if it is, what is the role of storage in that? And how important then is it to get the right kind of storage systems to make that happen? Yes, ah, very excellent question, Ed. And of course, a question that we've been working on for, for quite a while now. So fundamentally, we need to separate out this question into two specific uh, challenges. The first one is physically being able to operate a grid with 100% renewable energy, meaning no rotating machinery on the network and the ability, of course, for renewables to connect and remain connected as well. As a headline, you might have seen as well that um, the um, IEMO CEO just only recently again updated the timeline we've got in Australia until we get to 100% renewable energy. And that's now by 2025. As you know, most forecasts, if it comes to renewable energy, have been wrong, meaning things happen faster than they were actually meant to be. And that's for the industry overall, who's used to long planning cycles, used to, you know, not making decisions that need to be made fast, a very unusual domain to work within at the moment. So the challenge really is the 100% renewable operation. How do we get there? Once we get there, it's not so much a technical question anymore. Then it becomes an energy and more a investment question. Well, how much more energy can we then connect? How much we oversize so solar farms or wind farms in order to, of course, deliver that renewable energy for longer? So South Australia specifically, you know, for instance, operated in November for actually more than a couple of hours. It was, of course, on a specific day, but at more than 100%. They were exporting, right? They were exporting with 167% into the rest of the country and were able to demonstrate you can operate without rotating machinery, as in gas turbines or coal-fired power plants, that part of the network. Now, people always argue, oh, that's nice and good, but that's only, say, a 2 to 3 gigawatt network. Well, that's true. But the physics, that's why I always explain it, the physics are the same. Now, whether you go, if you're in the US at 60 hertz or if you're in Australia at 50 hertz, right? We can't, you know, cheat the physics. They will always, you know, make us, <laughs> you know, challenge and do the right thing. Meaning we have to solve this issue, how we operate. And that's one of the reasons why the Rimple battery was installed to start to demonstrate how we can now, without the rotating machineries, actually operate at 100%. So Jürgen, to check I really understand what you're saying here, your point is that in engineering terms, a 100% renewable energy grid is absolutely possible. The issue is really about the economics. It's about market structure, regulation, incentives for the private sector to invest, and so on. Those are the issues that are really uh, potential limiting factors on having much higher levels of wind and solar on the grid potentially up to 100%. Is that right? Yes. So I think you're right in, in, in that assumption, meaning it's really a matter of creating that environment in which investment can happen because the technology to operate at 100%, we do have now. And the question is, how do we create the incentives for that technology to be used and invested to make the transition possible? And why do I say this is because we have experience from building systems on a smaller scale that, of course, already operate at that 100 percent. 
And we need to build that trust and confidence into those planners and decision makers that they can see it's actually possible to run the much larger networks at 100% as well. And the pathway to that is like John explained, is a lot around modeling now, right? Modeling and creating that certainty from the modeling that one can see how this will happen and how it can actually be done into the future. So John, just going back to where we came in then at the beginning of this podcast, the governments of the world, the vast majority of governments of the world have set net zero objectives, a lot of them for 2050, a lot of them for 2060. And achieving those objectives is inevitably going to mean having a lot more renewable energy. That's unavoidable, I think, including much higher penetrations of wind and solar power on the grid, potentially pushing towards 100%, even if not quite at 100%. Given everything we've been saying about the strains on the grid that that creates and the potential for storage to tackle those problems and address them in in a number of different ways. If you were to pick one thing and just say, this is the thing that really needs to happen in order to get that large-scale investment in storage that we're going to need to have to facilitate that much higher level of renewable generation, what would it be? What's the thing, as I say, wave a magic wand, pick something to say, right, this is what we really need to tackle to get this done. What would you point to? Yeah. So, you know, I, th- I think it's really useful to contextualize this in a little bit of the, the history of where grids have come from. Um, so, you know, the industry has grown up over, what, 120, 130 plus years. Um, and a, for a large portion of that, it was entirely single operators who would provide a holistic solution, fully vertically integrated solution. But over the past 30 to 40 years, there's been a real push to deregulate the markets. So you've separated out into, you know, the wires themselves, which remain operated by a single entity, typically within a geography. And then you'll have competition specifically in the generation space. And that's where that has, in many of those areas, allowed a bunch of renewables to come in and compete with some of these other traditional technologies. But now as you need this energy storage to start coming online, the energy storage, I mean, I think circling back to some of the stuff we talked about, it has a full value stack. And part of the value that it offers is into the stabilization services and some of the services within the network itself. So they support the wires. And they also clearly support the generation. They're complementary to these renewables. So the need I would say is a renewed effort to characterize and allow in particularly in these markets where you've you've got competition allow the energy storage to compete and provide services in both of these areas. You know it's a real it's a real challenge, right? Because they're no longer completely vertically integrated. You have to have an asset that can support the wires, which is traditionally owned by a single operated by a single entity, as well as provide services in an area where it's intended to be fully competitive. So, um, you know, in the in the circling back to this ESCRI project, the ESCR project, the way they did that was described by Jurgen, where you had the network operator own it, and then they allowed uh, a third party to come in, AGL, and participate in the market. And some innovative business ideas like that, allowing those to flourish in different markets is going to really help with the scale up of energy storage solutions like these that can enable a renewable future. So I want to end on a bit of futurology, a bit of crystal ball gazing to look out at the way some of these trends 
might play out. And I'm interested really in, in both of your thoughts on this. John, you've been just talking about some of the things that need to happen uh, in order to encourage this kind of investment. If the right decisions get made, if regulators, policymakers, and the private sector make smart decisions about what needs to happen in terms of uh, cooperation to make real progress on decarbonizing, heading towards a grid with much lower greenhouse gas emissions associated with it, what might that look like in, let's say, 30 years' time, right? A lot of, a lot of places are setting 2050 targets. What might the grid look like in 2050 in order to be playing its part in taking us towards that net zero world? I mean, maybe, John, you answer that first, and then, Jürgen, if you want to chip in with some thoughts, I'd be interested to hear from you too. Well, I mean, first and foremost, we, we won't be restricting the amount of renewables that we can put into the grid because those are going to be the fundamental backbone of where our electricity comes from. Um, we already have technologies today that can displace the traditional way that we've we've been getting our power, you know, these synchronous generators. So it looks like we will as we continue to catalyze the ability of us to put energy storage in there and complement these renewables, I think that's going to be a key element. Um, there's certainly going to be elements of um, leveraging the benefits of regionality where you're going to be putting renewables into parts where the resource is good to connect up with people who may live in other areas. And another element that I think is going to be important is electricity everywhere, you know, the electrification of things. And we're already seeing that transformation happening around vehicles. And this all will need to come together. And it looks promising that it will come together to have a fully sustainable energy future driven by these all dynamic things happening at once. So I'm, I for one am optimistic about it and pleased with some of the progress that we've made in terms of getting some of this technology we have out there to, to show that it can happen. That is indeed an exciting sounding vision. Jürgen, what do you think? What's your vision of what this sustainable, low-carbon power system of the future might look like? Yeah, look, I think it's it's amazing and it's exciting that we can even, you know, now look at this and, and, and with some, I think, clear paths, see how it's actually going to happen. So as John said, the future networks the future will be electric meaning the transport sector as we discussed as well as industries will convert you know from using fossil fuels like you know even for heating and other things now to electric and it means we need to then couple these sectors so when you look at you know 10 20 30 years ahead so those sectors for transport industry and others will actually then i use the word talk to each other right this is this orchestration where suddenly we and and simple examples are and i use say a, a smelter right so a smelter might then actually follow the generation curve rather the other way around where at the moment the generation has to follow the load so things will change how we do things things will change also how we consume of course electricity but fundamentally we will have an electric world that is interconnected that has a lot of digital i guess platforms and backbones to inform us to make better and smarter decision how we operate and how we use electricity that is absolutely fascinating it is really amazing i think to be here now working in this business in energy it's a very very exciting time to be in this industry and certainly a great privilege to be taking part in it and it's been a uh, a real pleasure to be talking to you both about it today 
Unfortunately, we do have to stop it there. But John and Jürgen, thanks both very much indeed for coming in to, to talk about this issue today. Yeah, now, now thank you to you. It's been very, very good to share some of the thoughts and see how we can go and achieve them. Thanks very much for the time, Ed. Great conversation. As I say, thanks very much indeed for joining us, both of you. And many thanks to you for listening to this special episode. Please let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. We're on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. We'll be back soon with more stories from the fast-changing world of energy. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>